You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Tonight's scripture reading is going to be coming from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 22. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll give you a second to turn to that. And for those who are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. But some men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God, word of the gospel, and believe. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has now has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, 
but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. This is the word of God for the people of God. So we're continuing to look at the Acts of the Apostles, uh, otherwise known as the Acts of the um, Enthroned Messiah, who is working through the Apostles. So it's uh, really the second part of the book of Luke. In the, in the first part of Luke, Jesus uh, lives his life on earth, and then he dies and he rises again. And then when you get to the book of Acts, uh, that same Jesus that died and rose and lived in the book of Luke is now continuing to act. And He is now no longer on this earth visibly, but he is all around us invisibly because he um, he has been he has ascended to the right hand. And although he is just a human being, you know, he's still a human being like he was when he was on the earth. Uh, Now he has entered into like through the portal into another uh, dimension, so to speak, where he can, through his Holy Spirit, uh, be with us all at once. And so it would be a mistake to say that he's no longer with us down here. Uh, He is, but he's just with us in a new and different way. Um, it's like he's right on the other side of this thin membrane between the seen and the unseen. So um, that's what happens right at the beginning of Acts. He ascends, and then he sends out his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, uh, what the Spirit does is it fills his people, the church, uh, with power and energy to go witness and spread his kingdom around the world, to witness to the reign of Christ. Uh, it's a very unique kind of reign. And uh, it's, it's a kind of a rule and a reign that undermines the Roman Empire and the tyranny of the Roman Empire, uh, the tyranny of the Caesars. So it's, it's a special kind of government uh, that is upon the shoulders of Christ. And it's, it's not uh, a monarchy, um, although Jesus is the monarch. But among humans, uh, we don't have uh, one person in charge of the church. You can see from this passage that instead we have a multiplicity of different uh, leaders that have gathered together at one place in Jerusalem from different cities across the Roman Empire. And in that city, uh, they are making decisions together as a group of repentant, uh, sinful people uh, who know they're foolish and they need uh, checks and balances on one another. And so instead of ruling um, you know, through this one person who's squashing all dissenting voices, uh, Christ rules the world through these churches where uh, these people uh, who are leaders, who are appointed by uh, the congregations, they come together and uh, they make decisions together, which is a very alternative kind of politics. It's the politics that our country has actually embraced after many, many, many uh, generations. Um, not a whole lot of countries have done that, but uh, we have done that. And I would say our own country, our government is based on very, very much based on this passage, uh, Acts 15 where you have this kind of representative uh, government where people are essentially voting and working together in deliberation. So um, that kind of government uh, that's going on in Acts 15 comes through the idea that we are all very fallible and we're foolish and we're sinful and we need help. 
Um, and so you have these people that are saved by God's grace alone, not through works, not through wisdom, not through intelligence, not through rationality. And uh, because people are saved by grace alone, which was what the Council of Jerusalem was set up to decide, the question, are you saved by grace alone or by grace and works? And they said grace alone. Circumcision, not necessary. And because of that ruling, that's why you have the kind of government that he has. With people who are sinners saved by grace that are repentant, that need to say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, uh, I changed my mind. Uh, It's because we're saved by grace alone that you have this kind of council of Jerusalem. So I want to look at those two things. First, the thing they decided all together as a church, they decided we are going to believe that you do not have to be circumcised to be fully Christian, to be saved. You're not a second-class citizen uh, if you don't get circumcised. So that's the first thing I want to look at. Salvation through Jesus Christ alone and not through any kind of works. Not through any kind of merit. Um, Nothing we do. No virtue. No goodness. That's the first thing. The second thing is um, because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, um, we therefore, we work together through humble people deliberating, talking, discussing disagreeing, and, uh, and yet moving forward with the Holy Spirit into decisions. So those two things. Uh, first of all, Christ alone. Uh, verse 1, uh, some men came down from Judea uh, to Antioch. So this is a city in the north. Judea is in the south, but they came down the hill from, Antioch, from Judea, from Jerusalem, down to Antioch. And they're coming to Antioch after Paul and Silas have returned from their first mission trip. So um, these people who came down from Judea to Antioch, to this large city of Antioch where there are a lot of Gentile Christians. They were teaching the Gentile Christians. These are people who are not Jewish but became Christians even though they were, uh, they were pagans. They had never uh, heard of Yahweh. They had never been circumcised. They didn't keep the kosher. They didn't keep the law. These were just pagan Gentiles. And these people who came down from Judea were teaching them, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. You have to become Jewish first, and then you can become a Christian. Um, now, circumcision was a very, very important part of Judaism. It was kind of the, um, the symbolic heart of the Jewish imagination. So uh, we should not make light of circumcision. It was, uh, it was the great sign of Yahweh's covenant with his people. It was the command of God all the way back in Abraham when when Israel first started. Circumcise your children and mark them as people of my kingdom. And although it is a symbol, uh, you could say, well, it's just a little minor surgical operation. It is a symbol, but it's like a wedding ring. Uh, It's it's a very powerful symbol. If I took off my wedding ring every time I went into a bar, then you would rightly wonder about what kind of person I was. And circumcision is the heart of the Jewish identity. Uh, It was a way of saying, we are the people of Torah. Although it's just one little tiny symbol, it it stands for so much. And it was so powerful that uh, under this ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, he was a Greek ruler who came and uh, destroyed Jerusalem. Jewish mothers and infants were willing to die. The the Jewish mother and her infant, her baby boy, they were willing to die for circumcision. Uh, It was a matter of martyrdom for them. So... Uh, Let's not minimize what it meant to be circumcised for these early Jewish Christians. But now they come down to Antioch and they say, all these Gentiles that have converted, they've got to become Jewish first. They've got to be circumcised first. Um, Because Paul and Barnabas had just come back from this mission trip where tons of Gentiles had converted. 
And so they had seen, uh, Paul and Barnabas had, had seen people become uh, followers of Christ without ever going through Judaism, without ever even hearing about circumcision. They went right into faith in Christ. They skipped the step of going through Judaism and circumcision. So Paul knew, uh, Paul was somehow this kind of spiritual genius that saw things that even Peter didn't see. And he instinctively knew uh, that if you require anything for salvation, whether it be circumcision or any kind of good work at all, um, baptism even, if you require baptism for salvation, if you require anything, then that is the end of the sufficiency of Christ for salvation. Uh, It is no longer by Christ alone that you're saved. If you require any good, good works at all for salvation, then there goes the sufficiency of Christ. And so in verse 2, in Luke's kind of phlegmatic way, with a lot of uh, his kind of um, understated humor, uh, he says, and so Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. In other words, it was an explosive argument between Paul and Barnabas and the people who came down from Judea who were insisting on circumcision. It mattered that much to Paul. And this is one thing I want to say about um, this passage. Is it's okay to disagree. Today we had Discovering Salem and we didn't agree. Everybody in the room did not agree. Uh, there was strong discussion. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't heated, it wasn't angry, but it was strong disagreement. That's okay. Christians do that. Some of you are uncomfortable with uh, disagreement, uh, but that is, um, that is something we need to fight off. Um, because disagreement is an important part of being a Christian. Um, not like angry debate where you're not listening to each other, but Paul and Barnabas have a, a dispute in the next chapter that is massive. It's explosive. And they have to repent over that. So uh, disagreement is, is a part of being a Christian. We don't always agree on everything. But we always have to seek a higher authority than ourselves. Uh, and that's what they do. So in verse, uh, in verse 4, they, they are three. They're sent to Jerusalem. So Paul and Barnabas and the people who came down from Jerusalem, they all go back to Jerusalem And they're like, we can't settle this on our own. We're going to go to Jerusalem and we're going to let the whole church speak into this. So they put themselves under the, they submit themselves to a higher authority, to this council of Jerusalem. And they do it with charity. It says in verse 4, they were all welcomed by the church. So these are people who disagree sharply. And yet they come together and they eat together and they have hospitality together, table fellowship, uh, even though they disagree strongly. And that's something we need to really learn as a church, is to disagree and yet still love each other. I mean, for goodness sakes, our culture doesn't know how to disagree uh, and love each other at the same time. We, we, the church has got to teach the culture how you can strongly disagree and still love and still be in fellowship with one another. So in verse 4, Paul tells his side, they declared all that God had done among the Gentiles. And then he sits down, he stops talking. It's with a big council. Let's say maybe the number of people in this room, a large group of people who are leaders from all over the world, Antioch. Uh, Jerusalem, probably uh, Caesarea, Joppa, Christians from all over the, um, the world. At this point, the gospel has not gone that far. But all these people send leaders. And then Paul tells his side. And he's saying, these Gentiles didn't get circumcised and they're in. They're fine. They're Christians. And then the Pharisees in verse 5 tell their side. These, these Christians who come out of the Pharisaical party. They say it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles. So back and forth, debate, discussion, and then Peter stands up. Okay, so verse 9, Peter stands up, and you would think that um, if he were the Pope, he would just say, okay, this is what's happening. We're not doing circumcision. Or he, or he would say, we're going to mandate circumcision. But he doesn't do that. Peter does not stand up and make the final call. Um, 
Because he's a great leader, he actually repents, which is quite an amazing thing here. But in verse 9, Peter says, um, there is no distinction between the Gentiles and us, because their hearts are equally cleansed by faith, and we're all unclean. So Peter, who at one time had distanced himself from Gentiles, even after he became a Christian. Um, in, in Antioch, Peter visited Antioch, and when he got there, he got a little nervous about eating with the Gentiles who were not circumcised. So he actually stopped having meals with the Gentile Christians in Antioch. Peter withdrew, and of course, what did Paul do? Paul rebuked him to his face. He says, I rebuked Peter to his face. And Peter now, in front of all of these Leaders, Peter publicly repents, which is an amazing part of being um, a leader in the church of Christ. In the church of Christ, a leader apologizes. A leader says, I was wrong. A leader says, uh, help me, I need help. Um, that's what Peter is doing now. He, he has been rebuked by Paul, and now in front of all of them, he says in verse 10, why are you placing a yoke on the neck of the Gentiles that even we Jews could not bear? And what he's saying is that we ourselves could not bear the weight of the law. When we tried to be saved through the law, uh, we had our temple destroyed and we went into exile. And all the curses of the covenant fell upon us. So when you try to be saved through the law, through doing what is right, Peter is saying that did not go well. We could not bear that yoke. And by the way, a yoke refers to a very heavy slab of wood. It's really large. And you put two oxen on either side of the yoke. And they carry that yoke, and behind the yoke is a plow that plows a field. So that's what a yoke is. And what Peter is saying is that the law was too heavy for us to bear. That when you try to be saved by any part of your work at all, even if you say it's like 99% grace, but then you have to do one thing. You know, you've got to take the Lord's Supper. Or you've got to pray enough. Or you've got to read the Bible enough. If you add just one little piece of work to that equation, then it's a yoke. If you make anything necessary for salvation. And this yoke becomes heavier and heavier and generates more and more tension. And your shoulder will actually feel it. Like mine, I have tension that built up into this pain that's continually in my left shoulder. And whether that yoke be like a good family or um, social justice or uh, sexual purity or being empathetic or being like uh, self-aware... Or knowing the Enneagram well. Like all these things are ways that we can put yokes on each other. Where we say, you've got to be good at that. It's, it's, yeah, you're, you, know, you believe in Christ, that's great. But you've also got to really stand for uh, social justice. Or you've really got to have a good family. Like if you're divorced, or if you've had some kind of uh, you know, sexual immorality, then, uh, then you're, you're, not really, you're not on the same level as others. If you put any other... You know, command, any other kind of work in that, um, the yoke gets placed on you. Because then you start having to do it yourself. And what's, what's worse than putting the yoke on yourself is when you put it on the whole church. And if you see a church that, has, uh, that is living under the yoke of the law, um, it gets pretty dark. It's, uh, it's not healthy. It's, um, it's really bad. Because the church starts pretending And this is one reason people leave churches, because the church starts pretending, um, because if you confess what's really going on inside, um, you're going to get banished in some way. You're going to be very quietly dismissed by someone as less than, or there's something wrong with you. 
And so people don't repent to one another very um, openly. They kind of hedge their bets with repentance and they, they'll, they'll confess like a certain kind of sin, but not the real thing, not what's really going on in here. So confession becomes superficial and then vulnerability disappears. People don't start really sharing what's going on in their heart. So you might have a small group and in the small group, it's all just about prayer requests for their uh, relative's health or something like that, but not actually what's going on inside, you know, not what's really hard. I was in a small group uh, in New Jersey and it's a suburban church in New Jersey um, and um, it was a small group where I would say this church lived under the yoke of the law to some extent. And so people were really nice and they looked really well put together and nobody confessed anything inappropriate. And if you know my wife Margie, she doesn't live uh, under the yoke of the law. And so she, she said at one of these small groups, I don't know about y'all, but I just want to be worshipped by people. I want people to adore me. And there was like crickets after that. Nobody knew how to respond to that. And somebody then just moved on to another prayer request. <laughs> it's too scary to admit uh, something that's really dark about ourselves. Like, it's really hard to admit, like, I never pray at all. Like, I hate praying. Um, I'm not saying that's true of me. I'm saying if you admitted that, that would be really, really hard for someone to bear. And they might not know what to say next. They really might not even say, they might not even address that at all. Or if you say, like, I've never shared my faith in my entire life. I don't have a single convert to my name. I've never led anyone to the Lord. You know, again, they might just say, oh, I'm, mm, you know, just not really, and just kind of mumble uh, and not really say anything about what, what you've done. Or if you say, I never read the Bible at all, or I regularly curse at my spouse, you know, I, I use curse words that uh, I would never want anyone to hear me say. Like if you said something like that, or I envy my friends, or I've, I've held a grudge against you for years. Um, if you say something like that, and the yoke of the law is on that church, it's not going to go well. And that's why uh, Jesus says, you know, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, because I will give you rest for your souls. For I am meek and lowly of heart. And so he comes along and he says, I will carry that yoke for you. You don't have to bear that yoke. You can have the joy of not living with the yoke of the law. In verse 3, Paul talks about um, the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to hear that these people had been set free from the law. Um, you know, I set you free from boasting and comparison and inferiority and feeling left out. And all the covenant curses of social media, uh, that's what Christ does. He sets us free from all those things, from the yoke of the law. Uh, a book that I love called One Way Love, it's about the love of God. Straight down, one arrow going down, not another arrow coming up. He says, the gospel does not free you from what other people think about you only. It also frees you from what you think about yourself. And if you live under the yoke of the law, you're either going to be arrogant if you think you're keeping the law, or you're going to have self-contempt if you think you're failing to keep the law. And Jesus sets you free. So this is a type of person that is set free, that doesn't have the yoke of the law. Those are the type of people that we need as leaders of the church. Of Jesus Christ is those type of people that the ones who lead the church are the chief repenters. They repent the most. They don't think that they need Christ less than they did. You know, a year ago, they need him more than they did a year ago. They don't think they need Christ less than somebody who just joined the church. They need him more. They know they need him more because they know their sin more and they're saved through Christ alone. So because of the um, salvation through Christ alone, uh, we uh, we, we create and uh, we move forward with decisions through this kind of humble, uh, repentant uh, deliberation where we all share our views. So in verse six, they gathered to consider the matter 
And there was much debate. It was probably heated debate. Voices were probably raised. Um, but they know, each different leader in that room knows that they are very prone to being foolish. And that there's a lot of ignorance in their heart. That they don't know everything that's going on. They understand the uh, extreme fallibility of human reason. And so they need the checks and the balances. And I just was listening to a podcast that said that um, this is one of the reasons the scientific method develops uh, in the West, in Europe. Because uh, these scientists begin to realize we don't really, our, our intuitions about nature are not right. We need to check. We need to check our intuitions against other scientists. And so the scientific method developed because of this idea um, that we can't trust in our own heart. We can't trust our own intuition, our own rationality. We've got to be double-checked all the time. So um, this is the second point. Uh, the humble deliberation is how the kingdom moves forward. So verse 12, after Peter spoke, all the assembly fell silent. So nobody bullied anyone, nobody canceled anyone, nobody talked over anyone. I mean, contrast this to the Biden-Trump debate, which was really just, it was like a childish playground squabble. You know, that, compare that to what's going on here in the Council of Jerusalem, and you'll see how far we've fallen from what Jesus taught the way we should talk to one another. Um, even, even the really hardliner circumcision uh, people from uh, the Pharisees, they, they check themselves. They, they don't shut anything down. In verse 12, it says they listened, they being the people who disagreed with him. They listened to Paul and Barnabas as Paul and Barnabas related the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. So these people who disagree strongly are listening to them. And they take their turns. They speak one at a time. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James said, brothers, listen to me. And uh, the Bible says we should be uh, slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. And James actually wrote that. And this is the same James that is now saying, listen to me. And um, if anybody was the leader of this assembly, it was James. It was not Peter. I don't think James had an extra vote or anything like that. But he's the one that has the final word here. And actually, when he has the final word, he appeals to the Bible. And that's what makes Christian deliberation and discussion so different from the world, is that we have this final authority that we all appeal to. And that's what James does. The way this thing concludes is the final word goes to the king's voice, to the king of kings who wrote the scriptures. It's like a knight before the throne of a king. You know, the church bows and bends the knee, uh, bends the knee to the wisdom of the scriptures. I mean, that's what Christians are. We're a people who bow the knee to the Bible. We don't, we don't read the Bible and say, I, don't, I can't believe that's true. I hate that. You know, that's not, I don't, that's not me. Uh, that, that's not what a Christian can do. A Christian reads the Bible and we bow to the supremacy of the word. And so in verse 15, James says, Peter's words agree with the words of the prophets. And then he quotes from Amos. And that kind of seals the deal. The quote from Amos is like, that's the clincher. And even when James um, interprets Amos the way he does, if you notice, he lays that in front of the other leaders. This is my judgment, he says in verse 19. Therefore, this is my judgment. So he's not saying, I have, I'm the only one that knows how to interpret Amos. He's saying, this is my judgment. I bring it to you. And they all compromise. Verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church. They wrote a letter together. They wrote this letter together. And if you notice, the letter said two things. Number one, you don't have to be circumcised. Let's make that really clear, they said. Don't have to be circumcised. Salvation through Christ alone. But number two, 
you Gentiles need to be really respectful of your Jewish brothers and sisters. And if you go into these pagan temples and eat sacrifices or drink the blood um, or, have all, or, or sleep with a, a temple prostitute, that's going to offend the conscience of your Jewish brother and sister. So do, stop doing that. So it's this beautiful compromise. And this is how Jesus rules. Jesus rules by gathering these people like us who are repentant sinners, who are foolish. We know we're foolish. And he says, I'm going to trust you with my Holy Spirit and my word. And y'all are going to move this thing forward. You're going to carry the ball down the field. Verse 28 says, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And I love how they invoke the Holy Spirit. That ultimately, in their deliberation, when we meet as a session, as elders in our church, we believe the Holy Spirit is there working with us, deliberating with us. We're not alone. Again, there's no, there's no bishop here. There's no pope. There's no celebrity pastor saying this is how things are done. It's a gathering of sinners saved by grace, looking to the Spirit and to the Bible. And by the way, this is how the early church progressed. Uh, the, the Council of Nicaea. Hundreds of Christians got together and debated the nature of the Trinity. The Council of Constantinople, Council of Chalcedon, over and over again, throughout the history of the church, councils have met and decided things together like this. This is how the church works. And it is a beautiful model for you. I commend it to you in your life. Whether it be a classroom uh, that you teach, or a, um, a boardroom, or a staff meeting, or your bedroom. Or a dinner table. Or with your roommate. This is how Christians talk. Um, like these folks in this passage. I love the, uh, the Inspector Gamache books. Um, and uh, this Inspector Gamache is probably my favorite uh, of all the great inspectors and all the mystery writers. You know, um, this, he's like a Canadian. Uh, he's French-Canadian. Um, and his, he says, these are, these are the four phrases that lead to wisdom. He's always quoting these four phrases. Inspector Gamache. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I don't know. I need help. This is the leader of the homicide division of all of Quebec. Uh, I'm wrong. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I don't know. I need help. And that's what is commended to us by this passage. Uh, that's the way the kingdom moves forward. You know, when coaches are hired, often um, they will come in. This is, this is certainly true of college, especially. The coach will come in. They'll clean house. They'll fire the old staff because they can't have any dissension in the ranks. They'll call in their players and do a big players meeting. And they'll basically say there's a new sheriff in town. Get on board or transfer. No dissension. You know, I'm not having any dissension. No, no lip, no talk back. It's my way or the highway. That's kind of what new, new coaches do. And this is a fallible coach in charge of this little team of people playing with balls. That's, that's, what we're, that's the level of seriousness we're talking about there with the coach. Now, when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, omniscient, omnipotent, all-benevolent, an infallible king, he doesn't do that. He doesn't come in and clean house. He doesn't say it's my way or the highway. He, he says, I'm leaving I'm leaving y'all, and yet I, I, I believe in you. You've got this. You've got my spirit. You've got my power. I'm taking off. I trust you. Go do it. That's what he does. It's a totally different way of ruling. He, he gives up all his power on the cross. He becomes absolutely weak and helpless. He can barely talk. That's how he's crowned on the cross, crown of thorns. His throne is the crucifix. 
And he gives up all of his power so that he can rule through a people who are repentant people, who are saved by grace alone, through this great meal that we celebrate together. This is the way uh, Christ rules his church. Remember, we love these rascals.